we prayed before, Lord, hopefully by ourselves today, and then hopefully in many other groups, in seminars and other locations, and even tonight, Lord, on this platform, in this place, I am completely dependent upon you, Lord, to make this live. And we are all completely dependent upon you for the work that needs to go on in our hearts and minds. Perhaps the changes, perhaps the resoluteness for lives that are already focused the way I'm going to talk tonight. Thank you that you love us. May we realize one life is too short to show how much we love you and help us to focus them the right way. This is my prayer tonight in Jesus' name, amen. The picture of the red car that's about to appear on your screen is not an actual replica it's not an actual picture of the car that changed my life, but it looks pretty close. I was a young pastor and uh, 30 years old and had just come to a new church and the head elder had a vision. Now some of you know the head elder, some of you are probably related to that head elder who I still revere as a father in the faith, a spiritual man. His name was and is Elwyn Scholl. And Elwyn owned a car like this. You know, after you've taught a full life at one of or more of our institutions, like he did at Indiana Academy and Broadview Academy and some other places, and uh, God blesses you sometimes with a little way to relax and to have a little bit of fun. This was uh, a car that he really enjoyed, but God started moving on his heart. And he came to me one day and he said, Pastor, I have an idea. And if you're going to be a leader, you need to be a good listener. And so I thought, well, let's listen to the good idea. And he said, you know, uh, there's a program coming up in the church called Net 95. And Net 95 is something that I think should happen here. And he says, I'm willing to sell my little MG and donate, it might have been all of the money, to get the equipment to do Net 95. And I thought to myself, oh boy, how do I tell this man, I think Net 95 is a terrible idea. Now, I hate to confess that to you. But you know, some of the older people are much wiser most of the older people are much wiser than the young people. And Elwin Scholl was a man of prayer and a man of persistence. And so Elwin Scholl would come by and see me every once in a while and say, Pastor, what do you think? And then eventually he came by and he said, Pastor, I sold the car. And pretty soon it was looking like it was going to be impossible for me to say, Sorry, we can't do that. So he put his money in a tithe envelope and it went in a fund for Net 95. And we bought one of those great big dishes, you know, the kind that looks like they ought to be used at a, 
uh, a mountaintop observatory and or maybe for a satellite company. And you know, we were one of about 600 churches that joined in the first net series. And I can't tell you how thrilling it was to me on the first night when that signal came in and there was Wentley Phipps singing, Lift Up the Trumpet. And then Elder Finley came on and as he was preaching about Daniel chapter 2, my heart thrilled as the Spirit of God moved through the man, the message, and the medium of satellite technology. And at the end of Net 95, we baptized a biologist and a nurse and a lawyer and a businessman and a paralegal and about two or three other people. And those individuals were all relatively young. And over a period of time, with the commitment to serve Jesus, they actually became some of the leaders of the church, totally transforming the experience of that church in Indiana, all because a man had a vision, a man had commitment, a man put his money where his mouth was, and a man who prayed didn't give up. And I want to praise the Lord for those godly people who believe that this message ought to go forward. The Bible says this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached unto all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then the end shall come. This is tucked away in the chapter on the signs of Jesus coming, but Jesus won't leave this topic alone. When it comes to the last parting words, He says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Now, what I love about the Bible, and especially about the teachings of Jesus, is how simple they are. Jesus made it easy to understand. He set the bar at a place that most could reach it easily, and even more could reach it with a little bit of effort of understanding. And with some good teaching, it's not hard to embrace the meaning. Now, I want to combine with it that Scripture that was on almost every Seventh-day Adventist church sign for a generation or two. You remember those signs back before we had message boards and electronics. We had three angels, and we had the world. And there, tucked away, the writing wasn't very large, but we had this message. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come, and worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of water. I learned that as a pathfinder. It's been in my mind for years. It's important that we understand the message. It's an amazing message. I've done a whole series of sermons just on those two verses. And they are deep and beautiful and awesome. But there is a problem inside of Adventism. And rather than talk about Adventism, maybe I should say there's a problem inside of Adventists. Maybe what I should say is there's a problem inside of me. There is a real tendency for us to come to know 
only the church and not the Lord of the church. There is a tendency for us to become accustomed to the good life, the American dream, and not really dream about what Jesus has in mind for us. Now, I'm going to put a definition up on the screen. It's the definition of the word ethnic. It says right here, it's an adjective of or relating to a population subgroup within a larger or dominant national or cultural group with a common national or cultural tradition. I want you to know that the Adventist church is at a pivotal place where if it's not careful, it will start looking like Judaism without the Shekinah glory in the temple. We're in a moment in time where Adventism is five generations old for some. It should only be one generation old for all of us. We are the children of God. We're not grandchildren. And if we're not careful, we will find ourselves relating to the church as a religious club. And we'll go there on Saturday because we always went on Saturday. But the sermon isn't very interesting. The people aren't always so nice. And it's really a place I go because I don't really want to tell my mom and dad I, I don't want to go anymore. Or it's really just a place I go because it's, it's a habit. We have the ability right now of becoming a group that has an ethnic identity. We're a subgroup inside the American culture and a subgroup inside of religious culture. And it's possible, if we're not careful, that we will become only an ethnic group, not a spiritual movement. Now, our society right now is, is becoming more and more narcissistic. What does that mean? It means it's focused on itself. You don't have to look around too far to see that this is the I generation. And there are people who have written articles on the topic of this next word, cool. It's an informal word that says you're trying to be fashionable or attractive or impressive. Now, I've never really been a fan of the word. It's okay to use it in certain circumstances, but I always found, I went to public school for the first six years of my life, and I always found that it was the cool kids that made my life difficult. And I can remember being chased home from public school by the cool kids. And I can remember my back against that cold chain link fence while the cool bully with several of his cool friends were threatening to do me in. When I left public school and I went to church school, I didn't leave all the coolness behind. There are people who are still quite focused on impressing others with themselves. And our whole culture is like that, as a matter of fact. Um, the clothes you wear, if they don't have the right symbol up here or on the back, if they don't have the right swoosh on the shoes or the right little faux leather patch right back here on the right side of the waist, if the car isn't exactly right or the phone isn't the right model, whatever it might be, then our fragile identities might not be what we were hoping they would be, not so impressive, fashionable, or attractive we weren't called to be cool. And we weren't called to focus attention on ourselves. We were called to focus attention on Jesus. And by the way, Jesus was absolutely not cool. Amen is right. As a matter of fact, 
Jesus at times endured the wrath of those that were cool in order to make sure those that weren't cool and were on the outs with the, with the cool crowd actually understood what love and acceptance really was. The problem was, was that even though I was trained as a minister, I didn't realize I was subscribing as much to the cultural mantra of fashionably attractive or impressive as I was. And God had a plan to liberate me from it. He made me do some things that either I was going to be true to my calling. And you remember last night I talked about Moses needing to learn honesty. It's that honesty when you know this is what I have to do and I know people aren't going to like it. I had to do some of those things that absolutely was going to rob me of being fashionable or impressive or attractive. And over a period of time, Jesus was taking the world's mantle of self-focus off of me and He was giving me a freedom to just be like Him. Now that process is an ongoing one. I hope it's going on in your life. But I want you to be aware that when you can talk about God and the Bible in the church, but you can't look somebody in the eye and you can't talk about Jesus, there's a problem. What I found in my life was that I could put the witnessing hat on. I'm not two people between church and home, but even though I wasn't two different people at church or home, what I found was, was that when I felt self-conscious talking about Jesus with somebody and I couldn't keep eye contact, I realized there were things in my life that were accusing me and I didn't have the freedom that I needed to have. I'm convinced that our church now, with its wealth and its education and its recognition amongst the pantheon of Protestant churches, that we are hoping to hang on to something that doesn't produce the fruit of the Spirit and doesn't make you happy, we will have to go back to the place like the generations before us where we were respectable, but we were different, and the main person we represented was Jesus. I want you to be able to kneel down by your bed or wherever you pray, by an open window, wherever it might be like Daniel, and I want you to find the place where Jesus can speak to you, where it's not a spiritual monologue. And what happens is, is that along the way, what He asks you to surrender, you let go of, but what you get to embrace is a fuller sense of confidence in Christ. I'd like to contrast that word with this one. Now, our society is not much about this word anymore. Having or showing a modest or low estimate of one's own importance. And there's an old song, song I love, says, "'Tis the gift to be simple, tis the gift to be free, tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we shan't be ashamed. To turn turn will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. 
I want to be like Daniel who can circulate amongst the most noble men and women of the governance or the industry or whatever it might be of this age. But I also want to be like Daniel who is never embarrassed to let Jesus shine through in the small or the large. I want to be like Joseph who was faithful as a servant and a slave who was overlooked and abused. And when he came to be a man of influence and responsibility, the character that Jesus had fashioned and his open profession of Christ was a shield to him and the world took note of the excellency of God. But I never want to be embarrassed to talk about Jesus. And I'll tell you the songs we're singing tonight. I mean... You know, a sermon is never done until you preach it. But boy, I'm missing being out here for these songs. When I hear the captain calls, the only thing we were missing is the big bass drum with someone, you know, keeping cadence. It's a march. And those old songs aren't good because they're old. They're good because they lift up a beautiful, simple Jesus and they give us the freedom to smile and be happy in our inmost soul and they encourage us to be delightfully different in a world that's lost its way. Now, not everybody likes it. And I want to encourage you to be self-aware. I don't want us... I don't want us to ever wound our freedom to talk about Jesus because we're not self-aware either. Be self-aware. Try to be sensitive to your environment and how you're coming across. Now, I started with a car, and now I want to transition to how you drive. I once was a part of building a house, my house. And you know, I was building it on a shoestring. And people would loan me things, and I had a contractor in the church loan me a bobcat. Now, this story came back to my mind recently because I watched what I'm going to describe to you happen right over here on Interstate, I don't know, the one that runs north-south. I dropped my daughter off at Warren at the mega booking program, and, and then I had to take a big deed to her home. And I watched happen what I'm about to describe to you. I used the bobcat to move dirt around. And then I loaded the bobcat on the trailer. And I had a Ford Econoline van. It was built on a half-ton chassis, a 150. And it was a tandem axle trailer. And I was kind of a newbie at this. And I didn't load the bobcat on right. It was too far to the back of the trailer. And I'm walk, I had a half-mile-long gravel drive, and then I got out on a very narrow country road where the speed limit was about 55 miles an hour, maybe 50. And I hadn't gone more than about a half-mile, but I got up to speed, and all of a sudden I realized I had a problem. The problem was, was that that bobcat weighed more than my van. And it started doing this. It started the tongue started moving from side to side, and pretty soon the whole back of the van was convulsing like this. And I'm thinking to myself, how am I going to get control back? Now, I watched this happen on the interstate just a week or two ago, and it was so bad, they were in a white truck pulling a big load of carpet they had torn out of somewhere, and it got so bad, the tires were screeching on the back as the back of the truck was 
trying to direct the motion of the truck. So my heart starts to race. The adrenaline is shooting into the veins. And I'm thinking to myself, I've got to stop this van. I've got to stop this trailer. If there's an oncoming car and I don't get this under control, there's going to be a head-on collision. Or worse, maybe, no, not worse, or just about as bad, I'm going to lose control and run off into one of these cornfields and dump this bobcat over, and how am I going to explain that? But I noticed something. Every time I stepped on the brakes, it got worse. Now, I'm a problem solver, and I figured out pretty quick I was going to have to do something very counterintuitive. If I wanted to get control of this van back, I was going to have to take advantage of the V8 engine that was under the hood. I was going to have to step on the gas. I was going to have to take the inertia of the 200 and some odd horsepower and tell the trailer, you're following me. And so, with the sweat beginning to build on my brow and the white knuckles on the blue handle, I put my foot into the pedal and I accelerated. And I want to tell you something. As I accelerated, I recognized I was winning, not losing. And when I got that trailer following that van, I was the carefulest driver to slow down. And I don't think I've ever driven as slow as I had that night between my house and the destination I was headed to. Now, why do I tell you that? Because I think there's a lot of people leading our churches that don't know how to drive. Now, I'm not the most experienced person in the room tonight, but I will say this. It seems like most often when I've gotten into the driver's seat in a church that we've got the same kind of problem going on. And I'd be so bold as to say the denomination has the same problem going on. We've got theological discussion and division on the trailer, and we're trying to get it to stop. And it seems like, and we got financial challenges and institutional challenges, and it seems like we should probably do a little bit different. But tonight, I'm here to tell you there's only one way we're going to find our way out of the dilemma we're in, where the issues behind us that are dividing and dragging us down and trying to take control of the direction of the church are going to be conquered, and it's going to be conquered with the subject matter I need to talk with you about. I'm going to teach you how to drive your church. I've come into churches that are so poor that they're not putting the light bulbs and all the lights in the sockets trying to save money. I came into one church where the vacuum cleaner was broken, and it was not a little church. It was a 400-member church almost, and we spent a half hour talking about what we were going to do with the broken vacuum cleaner. Any one of the members around the board could have said, I've got $200, let's fix the vacuum and move on. But there's something about collections of people where personal commitment and risk-taking seems to drop out of the formula. I told you last night about the rain clouds gathering for that little Monticello church. I didn't tell you what happened. We had an evangelistic series. And God sent us souls, souls that were old, souls that were middle-aged. I don't know if we had any young souls in that campaign. But tonight, I'm going to tell you something. If you feel like you're at the head of an institution and what's behind you is trying to direct which way you're going, you need to listen carefully tonight because tonight I'm going to teach you 
how to drive. It's a little bit scary to do what I'm going to teach you to do, but if you don't do it personally in your personal life, you won't be able to do it corporately when you're sitting on a board, whether it's for your local church or a district or a conference or a division. You have to practice this in private. You have to practice it corporately, but if you'll do it, I promise you, Jesus will take the wheel. And I want to start out by saying this. We tell ourselves that we are a prophetic movement, but I need you to know that you can't be a movement if you don't move. So, let's remember that if we were to boil down everything that Jesus said, the simplest thing would be just the first word, go. Now, I'm going to run you through a series of slides, and I'm going to comment on them. And I hope along the way you start catching my drift because after doing this for almost 30 years at about every church that I've come to, I've come to have a quite established confidence that the God who said go can give the provision for going. And some of the provision that he sends won't come until you go. So let's go to the first slide. I happen to be quite fond of it. That happens to be my youngest son. Now, that was about 12 years ago. Is he happy or unhappy? He's a very happy camper. He's probably nine or ten years old there. He's happy because he loves to work. He's happy because he's in a foreign country helping build a church for God. He's in Peru. He's leaning on a scaffold. He's with his daddy, and he's learning how buildings are built, and he's learning how God's people work together. He is a happy camper. Does he look happy here? Yes. He's standing between two Peruvian boys. He's never seen them since. He had never seen them before. That river in the background is going to be a place in which the watery grave is going to lead people into a confession of commitment to Christ. He's singing the songs. That water was so cold that even with my insulated waders on, it was chivalrous, if there's such a word. And I felt sorry for the kids that I put down into the water because it was glacier water off the Andes Mountains. But I want to tell you something. They didn't seem to be hesitant to go, and God had brought us to this place. There's something about getting outside of the ordinary dynamics of your life and going. Let's go to the next slide. This happens to be my second son. The son I just so showed you has graduated this May from Andrews University with a business degree. This boy is now a physical therapist living in California. But for about 10 to 12 years, every March, on March 18, because his birthday fell during spring break, we celebrated his birthday on a mission trip. He is now a young man, and my prayer for him is that he will use his education and the fact that he lays hands on people for their physical improvement, that he'll use it to advance God's cause. This man here is a businessman. For almost 20 years, he was the head elder of the Cicero Church. He was the businessman that was baptized in Net 95. He moved to Florida recently to help a little church get going there. He has the kind of job where he can be fluid and move around and work from home. He has used his wealth, his education, and his influence to advance the cause of God. This man here, he's a cement contractor. He's one of those, he's a big boy now. And I don't say that in a diminutive way. But he, he's a fun-loving man. But he was one of those kids that had to go to several academies to make it through. And when he made it through, Jesus wasn't through with him. When my house was being built, 
he came out and he did the contracting work. He was a backslidden Seventh-day Adventist, and he had several bad habits. And one of them, he practiced, he tried not to practice in front of me, but he'd have this huge wad of brown, dry leaves in his cheek. And he'd walk around, and when, when he was working at my house, he'd get a white styrofoam cup and he'd spit in it. And, oh, that is nasty. He did such a good job, and I realized that he was a backslidden Adventist. That hat he's wearing, he would come into church and drop his kids off for Sabbath school, and then he'd come back, and he'd slink around the, the foyer with his head kind of down, and his message was, don't talk to me. When he finished doing my work on my house, he handed me the bill, and I wrote him a check, and I put a $100 bonus in it, because I wanted him to know I appreciated what he did, and I'm not a stingy Seventh-day Adventist. I don't know how many weeks or months later, he was at the back door of the church where my office was, and his heart was breaking. Some of those bad habits had been eating away on his marriage, and his wife had left him. And when he came in to the church that day, and he sat there and he visited the emotional favor of the relationship was moving towards me so I could move it towards Jesus. And that afternoon in my church office, I was able to lead him to Christ. And I want to tell you today, just like everybody else I showed you, he's now a missionary. This next person, lady sitting on the right in the yellow blouse, is my administrative assistant. I want you to know right offhand, she's missionary. She works in the morning for the village church. She works in the afternoon for AFM. And she works for free as a freelance Bible worker, which is where her training is at, bringing souls to Jesus. But wherever she goes, she's a missionary. The man sitting in the right front, he's a farmer, a big farmer. He owned property on the outskirts of Indianapolis, but the city grew and they bought his property. It was a very positive financial experience for him. He moved over to Illinois where he bought thousands of acres of property. But I want to tell you, he's sitting in a little missionary church in the Dominican Republic. And I want to tell you what, whether he's in the United States or he's out of the country, he's a missionary. There's a full power radio station down in Terre Haute, Indiana. Just went on the air, similar to our Strong Tower stations. But you know, those little churches in that segment of Illinois and Indiana aren't very well to do. But this man said, look, you get to a certain amount and I'll put some in to make this thing go. And I want to assure you, he never told me, I don't think how much he put in, but I want to assure you, he took his billfold and as a financial missionary, he moved the cause of God along. This little church wasn't to exist. We went to build another one, but these people appealed to us. On the spur, the builders and the contractors, where would we be without our builders and our contractors? They are solving our problems. They are confident people. They are making it work. This little church was built, and then this little house was built. And you know, when the missionary spirit gets into people, it's a powerful thing. So, the church I was at in Indiana was a church of about 400 and you know what Ellen White says? She says the bigger churches should help the what? The littler churches. Well, this little church here was the second church we did this with. This little church didn't have a lot of middle-aged men, and they needed a new roof. 
Well, I want to tell you, the, the, the men and the boys from the Cicero Church piled into vans and cars, and they drove down to Lewis, Indiana, and they got on that roof, and in a short period of time, it was off, and in a short period of time, it was back on, and then I have to show you one of my favorite pictures. If you've ever been to Washington, D.C., you've seen one like it, where they're pushing up the American flag. I call this my church Iwo Jima picture. The steeple had to come off. And then when the shingles were on, the steeple had to go back on. And there's my son with the steeple in the background. Friends, raise your kids to be missionaries. Now I want to show you this picture. This is the inside of our church in Cicero. It was remodeled. I want you to look at the floor. Look at the floor. It's a beautiful, beautiful floor. When the missionary spirit gets a hold of a church, everything works better. That floor was installed absolutely free, night after night, by a very business-oriented contractor who was a missionary-minded young man. He just happened to be the son of our former conference president. Matt Gallimore installed that floor for free because the Spirit of God was moving on his heart. Now, we can't ask our contractors to do this, and I'm not sure if we asked him to even do it for free, but when the Spirit is in the heart of a man or a woman, they do things for Jesus that they would usually do for money. These are two buses. They're parked outside our university in Mexico, Montemorelos. Our young people at Indiana Academy and our students at Cicero Adventist Elementary, they got the privilege of taking international trips. They would never have any reason to be at Montemorelos University except for one thing. They're on their way to Mexico to build a church, and along the way, they're networking, and some of the people they meet, they meet later on at Andrews University or Southern University. These are experiences that when the missionary movement captures us, enrich the lives of our kids. Next picture. You say, Pastor, why are you showing me a picture of Glacier National Park? Well, I'll tell you why. In this picture, I'm 51 years old. And it's the very first time I've been to Glacier National Park in my entire life. And you know why I'm there? I'm there because the Village Church is working on the Fort Peck Indian Reservation about eight hours away, which is like a hop, skip, and a jump when you get that far out west. And at 51 years of age, I'm getting to go to Glacier National Park. But you know what's better is that Pastor Joe at the Village Church is taking our young people on an extreme Bible workout. They helped on the reservation, and now they're going out into nature to dig deep into the Word of God. Those kids are 14 years old when they get to go to Glacier National Park. I had to be 51. When our young people are engaged in the mission, they get the blessings that some of us have to wait to get till the middle of our lives. This lady here, she's a missionary. Her name happens to be Laura. And she is the leader, the head of our neighbor-to-neighbor community service program. I want to tell you something. She's advancing the cause of Christ. She is rallying uh, volunteers, and she is caring for the poor in our midst. But she is a missionary. And these children here, they are all elementary age children. They're standing in front of a church in Nicaragua with their teacher, who at that time happened to be my wife, their principal, Les Neal, and about six or seven or eight of them, all full of smiles. They've spent the week serving Jesus, away from televisions, away from cell phones, away from the internet, and they 
are happy, happy children of God. My son, a little older in this picture, serving the Lord. And by the way, by the way, my son is now out making money. And all three of my sons called me today for Father's Day, and I enjoyed visiting with them. And uh, I, I brought up with this one especially, I said, now son, remember I talked with you about those churches we're trying to build in El Salvador. I'm hoping that the 20-somethings in my church or in my network will raise enough money to build a church. And he said to me, oh yeah, dad, I'll talk with Nathan. Nathan's my other son. I've already talked with him. I'm not letting these guys off the hook. If they don't know why they live and how to advance the cause of God, what's the purpose of living? Now this church here, when I arrived on a Friday night nine years ago, they were sitting under a tree with no leaves on it with one bare light bulb hanging from one brown or black indoor extension cord. The class of 2009 from Indiana Academy went on this trip and some didn't want to go and it was a little bit dangerous because we were crossing the Mexican border back when they were cutting people's heads off. We did our due diligence and we prayed. There was a boy in this class who didn't want to go. He was kind of used to the city life and he wasn't too shy, I don't think, about letting people know he didn't want to go. But I want to tell you, at the end of that trip, that boy wrote the cover page for the Indiana Academy newsletter and he talked about how much joy he had having sweat and mud and mosquito bites all over him. This couple here, the guy on the right's the biologist. He just retired from Eli Lilly. His wife is a PhD teacher who taught for a while at the Andrews University School of Business. They were single until they went on, you got it, the mission trip. And now they have two beautiful children and they have exercised their gifts for God. The guy on the left was in Rwanda when the genocide took place. He was laying on the floor as the bullets were ricocheting off the hallway walls. He came back to America. The family was in a form of crisis. He got into hard metal music and drugs. Defied his mom and dad, some of the best Christian people I know. But you know, God's Spirit doesn't leave people alone. And eventually, because the church was moving and because there was a sense of adventure in Christ, there was something that caught his attention and he started moving with the movement. And he was a skilled mason. And over time, God's Spirit got a hold of him and he went to India where he started preaching the gospel. And it wasn't too many years after that that he ended up as the associate pastor of the church where now he's filling in while they look for another pastor. The guy on the right went on one of those mission trips. He's a gifted carpenter. And he led the church. You know, Indiana Academy is a smaller academy. And they had one of those homes out back for the girls' dean that you pull in on a truck. If you take good care of them, they're good homes. But not everything on an academy campus gets the attention it needs. And the house had become dilapidated. They tore it down. They pulled it out. They put a foundation in. And that guy on the right who hadn't been coming to church, but who started coming as the church started moving, in one day, you know, the Amish raised churches or raised barns. In one day, they framed the building. They put the trusses on. They sheeted it with a very organized group. And this young man, who's now a middle-aged man, led us on the journey because he's a missionary. This guy here, 
I need to be careful what I say about him. He built the United Airlines terminal in the Indianapolis airport. He builds Walmarts and Gold Gyms and Applebee's. If you saw him, you'd never know it. He's a one-man walking philanthropist. He is a businessman who knows that his business is in place to advance the cause of God. If you are a business owner today, I hope you understand that your business exists and the blessings that flow into your hands are a divine entrustment to bless the poor and to strengthen the cause of God. Every one of the bricks, our church school, it had problems. For some reason, it was a very poor block. You're looking at a nice-looking building. Every one of those bricks and blocks on that building was donated and put in place for free because the man I just showed you believed the cause of God should go forward. And when there wasn't enough money, he stepped in to take care of it. We're looking down on a church in Nicaragua. I'm looking down on the campus in Juliaca, Peru. Why do my kids get to walk on the reeds on Lake Titicaca? Why did they get to go where Fernando and Anna Stahl advanced the cause of God amongst the Incas? Because the church of God was moving in the foreign mission fields. I've showed you that picture. This man's a dentist, but he loves to advance the cause of God. This man is a maintenance worker or was in Indiana Academy. I don't know anybody that gets more done than this man gets done. But I want to assure you, he's a missionary for Jesus. This is a young man who's about to graduate as a teacher. He's looking pretty bummed out. Just before we got our supper in Nicaragua, the bus driver cooperated with some local thieves, and he parked the bus where they could get on without being seen, and they stole computers and video cameras. And he's sitting around waiting for something to eat while the police report gets filed, it's a pretty bad way to end a mission trip. But I want to tell you, he's a missionary at home. He's a young man, and when he's on duty to run our AV team, he's at church a half hour before the Sabbath school starts or the first service, and he's up there making sure everything's just right. You see, when you're a missionary out of the country, it's hard not to be a missionary in the country. God's people are mission-minded. They are missionaries. This couple here, they were missionaries in Africa and Tanzania and Kenya. He was an airplane mechanic and pilot. He came back and he taught at Andrews University. His wife was a teacher at the village school. They moved on to the Fort Peck Indian Reservation to reach those individuals who had not yet experienced new life in Christ. We came out, we put a new roof on, on this church, which is the oldest church on the reservation. And I can't tell you how much goodwill it generated amongst a group of people that are somewhat suspicious of outsiders. This man works at Lithotech, but he wants that mission on the Fort Peck Reservation to go forward. He is a missionary. By day, he's printing books and selling books, but by preference and by passion, he's thinking about the people who need to be reached on the reservation. Here's a group that went. Diabetes is a terrible problem on the reservation. <laughs> they were so... <laughs> suspicious, and, and the emotions were running the wrong way, but they opened up the college, the only college on the university, and they allowed us to serve vegetarian food and give away 
uh, recipes on the only college. And I want to tell you, as of just this last year, God is opening the doors wide to where now Neil Nedley has been there. They're using, his di- uh, they're using West Youngbird's Diabetes Reversal Program and Neil Nedley's Depression Recovery Seminar as curricula in this university. That's the church where I pastor. You know what? By God's grace, I'm hoping and I'm discipling that every single one of the almost 1,000 members that are on the books and 500 that attend are missionaries. This is the village school. We're training missionaries. Andrews University, we're training missionaries. I'm going to skip through some of these, but I can't skip this one. I bought a book a few years back at the used books sale over here that uh, we have at our camp meeting. And on the front is a picture, picture of the Mission Hospital out west on one of the reservations. It's entitled The Century of Miracles. It's 100 years of history of the Adventist church. And you know this picture right here, if you looked at it real carefully and you could see it up close, you might recognize somebody because in this book of 100 years of miracles, they took the kids from the Michigan Conference Sabbath School and they put them in the book. And I want to promise you, those Sabbath school teachers were raising up these kids to be what? Missionaries, absolutely. I, t- I was preaching once about this book because I had the desire to give each of my children one to set on a, on a lamp table in their home so they could remember why they have an Adventist education and why as professionals they have more money and privilege and influence than other people. And somebody watched it on live stream and they bought another book and they sent it to me. You know what? Whoever that was, if you're here tonight, I want to say thank you for being a missionary with me. Voice of Prophecy, our college in the Philippines. I wish I had more time to tell the stories. One of the Luzeros on the Amazon mission, an old way to keep track of where Adventist churches was at the general conference. And then here's a missionary who helped me get through school. Some of you may recognize him. His name was Clyde. You know him better by his last name. His last name was Harris, and he lived out in Oregon. And some of you went to school as a result of his missionary-mindedness, too, because he ran an organization called Harris Pine. You know, he donated the whole thing to the church. Then there's the 120, actually 500 Korean missionaries. They have formed the letters or the numbers 120 to represent how many were in the upper room. Why? They're going to go out and sell books door to door. They are missionaries. Our pathfinders learning all their skills are missionaries. And we join in the great missionary movement when we band together to do things like unlock revelation. This man wanted a church in El Salvador. The problem was the property he had went down at a very precipitous angle. And when the people from Cicero came by, they said, don't bother building there. It's a waste of time and money. You're pouring money down a rat hole. But you know what? This man wanted a church, so he started building anyway. Every year, those people from Cicero, some of them I showed you in the picture, would come by and they'd say it's a waste of time and money. But I want to tell you, after year number three, when he didn't give up, those people said, we need to help this man. And today, he has a church. Our pioneers, they lived to move the work of God forward. Echus, the school in El Salvador, a dormitory that's largely empty, churches in El Salvador. You think you have it rough? These people meet under porch roofs. 
you know what? The church in Bering Springs where I'm leading, we decided just the other day we're going to help them build 10 churches. Every church costs $10,000. And you know, every block costs 50 cents. You know what that means? There's not a kid in our church who couldn't put a block in the wall whether they went or didn't go. I want to tell you something. Our church is to be like a screen. I have a slide like this, but I don't have it tonight to show you. A screen where all the arrows that have been going every direction, all of a sudden when we recapture the fact that we're the remnant church and we have an obligation to tell the glory of who God is to the world, all those arrows start coming together and they all start pointing pointing one direction because we are all born into the kingdom of God as missionaries. A piece of rebar 20 feet long costs seven. You may not be able to go to a foreign field, but you can send your desire with $7. Put that piece of steel in the wall. A bag of concrete, $8. The goal I have at Village is a goal I could wish for every North American Seventh-day Adventist, and that is, if you'd like to get your church moving, try to move another one along and see if God doesn't open the windows of heaven to help you keep yours moving along too. Those who take up their appointed work will not only bless others, but will themselves be blessed. The consciousness of a duty well done will have a reflex influence upon their own souls. The despondent will forget their despondency. The weak will become strong. The ignorant, intelligent, and all will find an unfailing helper in him who has called them. To show a liberal, self-denying spirit for the success of a foreign mission is a sure way to advance the home missionary work. For the prosperity of the homework depends largely under God upon the reflex influence of the evangelical work done in countries afar off. I don't want you to miss this. You've heard it before, but I want it emblazed in the frontal lobe of your minds. I want it in the experience of your living. It is in working to supply the necessities of others that we bring our souls into touch with the source of all what? power. The Lord has marked every phase of missionary zeal that has been shown by His people in behalf of foreign fields. And He designs that in every home, in every church, in all the centers of the work, a spirit of liberality shall be shown in sending help to the foreign fields where the workers are struggling against great odds to give the light to those who sit in darkness. That which is given to start the work in one field will result in strengthening the work and other places. Now, I'm not a doctor, but I'm going to give you an elementary medical illustration. If I were to sit down right here on the edge of this platform, and I had a little rubber mallet in my hand, and I said to one of these people on the front row, would you come up here, please? I need your help. I said, now, here's what I want you to do with this rubber mallet. I want you to take it, I don't want you to slam it into me. I just want you to nicely tap on the tendon that runs from the top of my knee down to the muscle that makes the lower part of my leg work. I just want you to tap it. So the question is this. Would I need to consciously create a reaction or would it happen automatically? That's because it's called a what? A reflex. So my question to you is, is that if we recapture a sense of how important the three angels' message is and that every nation, kindred, tongue, and people needs to know, 
And if my church actually can embrace a project and every child could know they could forego a candy bar and they could stick the money in the sacrifice sock and they might be able to put another block in the wall. Can you imagine for less than a candy bar, you could put a block in a wall in El Salvador? I wonder what would happen to our schools and our kids, and I wonder if they wouldn't be willing to forego some of the cool clothes and some of the expensive data packages in order to help somebody, especially if they've fallen in love with a little boy or a little girl who isn't going to go to school unless there's a school to go to and is going to sit under a leaf instead of sitting under a roof to sing their praises to Jesus. I've found everywhere I've gone that the financial dynamic of the church only goes up, sometimes rapidly, sometimes slowly. And it's this recent. We applied for some MAP money. Now listen, if you're not giving to MAP, please, 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 please take care of your local budget. Give a percent or two to Michigan Advanced Partners. And give a percent or two. Our churches aren't selfish. Not be corporately stingy or selfish. Could I get an amen? amen. Our churches aren't selfish. We're Seventh-day Adventists. We believe that God can supply abundantly. But I want to tell you something. The first, one of the first things we did at Village when I saw that we, we needed a little bit of assistance in one of those early board meetings, I asked, after explaining some things to the board, I asked them to pledge $50,000 for a church on the reservation. And you know why? They did. And you know, the other night... After I've been down to El Salvador a time or two recently, I asked them if they'd embrace a number of buildings in El Salvador for the cause of God. And you know what? They did. We voted, voted a budget of about $116,000, which you say, well, you're a big church. That's right. But I want to tell you what, big churches are not always rich churches. And I want to tell you within a day or two, my treasurer came to me and she said, Pastor, we just got $20,000 from Michigan Advanced Partners. And you know, when I walked out of that office that day, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that it was a reflex influence as we reached out to embrace. God sent the money at the right time to say, you know what? It's going to be okay. The other night after a Vespers, where I was explaining what the trip would be like, a woman walked up to me, not a woman who's well-to-do, a woman who's a professional person, she was very private about it and very discreet. And she said, you know what? I'd like to give some matching money to build a church. She gave enough to build one, but her money's going to multiply to build two, three, or four. The other day, my Bible worker was in Apple Valley. And we're going we're to plant 600 lemon trees on the campus of Eccles. Every lemon tree costs $3. For some reason, Dennis Page got it in his mind that this lemon orchard just had to happen. So he had been working hard that day, and Dennis goes into Apple Valley, and he walks by the shelf, and he sees some cookies that are marked down to 3 or $4. He grabs the cookies. He heads to the line. But between the time the cashier could serve him and he could get out of there and open the package, the Lord said to him, You've got a lemon tree in your hand. And he had to think about that. But he didn't think very long. He took his package. He got out of line. He walked back to the shelf. He sat him on the shelf. He went home. And he put enough money, equivalent to what the package of cookies was, he put it in the sacrifice sock 
in his covered. The first lemon tree has been paid for. Glory. Hallelujah. I could go on and on. I'm going to finish. You need to understand that in 1954, there was an amendment passed to the law. It was the tax law code. Basically, Lyndon Johnson was getting beat up by nonprofit organizations that were calling him communist. It was bad to be called a communist back then. There was a law written into the IRS code called the Johnson Amendment. What it said is nonprofits cannot be a part of the political process. For 20-some years, 30, 40 years, nobody challenged it. But in 1992, there was a little church in New York State that took out a $90,000 advertisement in USA Today and in the Washington Times, and it listed all the reasons you shouldn't vote for Bill Clinton. This was going to be the first time that this law was tested. Nobody wants to be the church crusher. Nobody wants to be the one that steps on the little guy. But the IRS got involved and they sued them. It is probably the only time when a church has actually been litigated for entering the political process. Now, there is something called a Pulpit Freedom Sunday. In Protestant churches in the spring, preachers will get up and they will break this law. They will speak politically. You know why? They're emboldened. At Liberty University, President Trump has leaned on this order. He's leaned on this law. He can't change it by himself, but he's going to try to change it. He says if he has his way, he will destroy the Johnson Amendment. We know that church and state are going to unite. When this amendment is out of the way, it'll be one less obstacle. And friends, what I want to assure you tonight is that when the most powerful individual in the country leans on something, it has a good chance of moving. This man helped Bill Clinton get elected. He did it with one little slogan, it's the economy, stupid. Now, stupid's an ugly word. It is used in the Bible. It's not a word I choose to use. But tonight, when we reflect on the General Conference in San Antonio and we think about the men of this world that Jesus says are more shrewd than the sons of light, we need to remember that every true disciple is born into the kingdom of God as a missionary and it's time to wake up and it's time to become a missionary movement again. He who drinks of the living water becomes a fountain of life. The receiver becomes a giver. The grace of Christ in the souls like a spring in the desert, welling up to refresh all and making those who are ready to perish eager to drink of the water of life. This is Indianapolis. This is where the next general conference will be held. And when the sun sets on the last Saturday night of the general conference, and we've seen the parade of nations, or however they choose to give an expose of the world movement. Listen, friends, it's time to quit talking about how evangelism doesn't work. It's time for us to actually start praying that evangelism will work. And it's time for us to remember, if you're going to be a movement, you have to move. And so I'm appealing to you. Turn off the TV. Spend less time on Facebook. Come to the church and pray, and let's ask God to refresh us so that once was moving, we'll start moving again. And our young people will have purpose, and our middle-aged men won't need to crisis as much, and our older people will be gratified that that which we are standing on has a bright future as the next story of this beautiful cathedral of hope is raised up and resurrected for this three angels' message to this, to all the world in this generation. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse 
or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.